Dead of the Bible. So glad that you guys are back with us. Now, uh, you know, as we go through this series, um, my hope is, is that you will look at these unique stories that are in the Bible and begin to get a picture of something that happened in what we're calling the Easter event, the Easter event. Now, I, I'm not ignorant. I know that not everybody that's in this room is not a Jesus follower. And that's really okay. In fact, I'm glad that you're here today. And here's what my hope is, is that for those of you who are not a Jesus follower, is that over the next couple of weeks, you would begin to hear some of the things, hear the claims of Jesus about being the Son of God, and look at these elements that are a part of this Easter story, and begin to weigh out and ask the question of yourself, do I believe that? Do I believe that? It's a great question to ask of yourself. And so we're going to, and by the way, it's okay to ask questions here. I want you to understand that this is a safe place to be able to explore and to, to examine the things that are going on. And when you run up against something, you're like, I don't understand this or I need more. That's what I'm here for. Not just this moment right now where I'm standing up here and, and talking, right? But I'm really here for you, for those questions and for those opportunities to be able to talk with you about all the things that are going on uh, and that you're exploring as you're looking for answers. Well, today, today we're going to move forward. In fact, we're going to fast forward about 800 years in the Bible. So it's a big transition, all right? And we're going to find Jesus in our story today. Now, Jesus in our story is walking and talking and teaching throughout the cities and the countryside in the area of Galilee. Now, there are kind of three areas when you look at Israel, right? There's um, Judea, and then to the north of it, there's Samaria, and then to the north of that, there's Galilee. And Jesus is in the far northern country in Galilee, walking around. Now, he's walking around between the cities and the countryside, number one, because that's where all the people were, right? That's mainly why he was there, but it's not the only reason. Because a few chapters earlier, we find out that Jesus got kicked out of church. You ever felt unwelcome to church before? Oh, yeah, we've all been there. It's happened. Well, it's okay, because Jesus got kicked out of church. In fact, the church is the ones who killed him, all right? And we're going to talk about that story on Easter Sunday. By the way, Easter Sunday is just a few weeks away, April 1st. And that's not an April Fool's joke, by the way, all right? <laughs> it is April 1st, and I want to encourage you, invite your friends. Invite your friends to be there, because we're going to look at that magnificent story of Jesus dying on the cross and coming back to life and how that changed everything, all right? But today, today we're going to see Jesus walking into a new city. It's a city called Nain, all right? Now, you try to say that one a whole bunch of times fast. You won't be able to, I promise. And the Bible's not even sure if it's an A-I-N or an E-I-N, depending on which translation you look at, right? But it's the city of Nain, and it's the only time that this city is mentioned in the Bible is in our story today. Now, the city, the name Nain, means beauty or beautiful or pleasantness. And what we're going to find out is that as Jesus walks into this city, it is anything but beautiful. It is anything but pleasant in this scene. So if you've got your Bibles, open them up to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7. Now, if you didn't bring a Bible today, 
Number one, that's okay, because you probably have a phone with you. And my favorite thing on the phone is, is that there's an app called the YouVersion app, right? And the YouVersion app is great because it lets you cheat, right? Because some of these books, they're hard to find, right? If you start telling me, hey, I need you to find the book of Habakkuk, right? I'm like, oh, that's a small one. Obadiah, right? Some of you are like, I don't even know if these are in the Bible. It's good questions, right? If I tell you to turn to First Hesitations or Hezekiah, you should know that there's something going on there, all right? Hesitations is not in there, although sometimes I feel like it should be because I have some hesitations on things. But the great thing about the YouVersion app is, number one, it has a tab that lets you list the books in alphabetical order, right? So you don't have to know where they're at. You can just go, I need to go to Luke. That's an L, so I need to go to the L section. So much stress relief right there. The other thing that's great about the new version is, is it has a whole bunch of versions inside of it. Now, I teach from the ESV, which is the English Standard Version. But some people, they're like, man, I'm really more partial to like the NIV, which is the New International Version. Or some people that have been around church for a really long time, they're like Roy, they're like, I like the King James Version. You've been around church for a really long time, bro. that's all I'm saying. <laughs> I, listen, Roy, you might be older than some of the rocks in my yard. I'm just... <laughs> but it's, but you can, if you like the King James Version, it has all of those different versions inside of it. You know what's great is I like to, when I'm reading a passage, I'll look between all the different versions to see how a group of translators has tried to capture what is going on in the story, the words that were used originally, because it wasn't written in English originally. It was written in Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic. None of those are first languages for me, right? And so these translators have done a great job to try to capture the sense of it. And sometimes when I go between different translators, I can go, oh, there's a word here that is, they're, they're, each of them are doing something a little bit different with. Let me go see what, it, what it, that word looks like and what that word means. Let me if I can get a better sense of what this word is. It's a great tip whenever you're doing some of your own Bible study at home. So it doesn't matter what you're reading from, as long as you're reading it. So here it is, ESV chapter 7, verse 11. Let's look at it together. It says, Soon afterwards, he, which is Jesus, went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out. He was the only son of his mother. She was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her. And he said to her, do not weep. And he came up and he touched the bier. And the bearer stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread throughout the whole of Judea and all of the surrounding country. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the incredible miracles that you do, that you continue to bestow upon us, that God, I thank you that you are so much more than a God who just visits us. 
at random times and random intervals, but God, you are a God who wants to draw near. God, I pray that we would capture that today. Give you all of the glory and the honor in your name. Amen. Well, the book of Luke is one of two books that happens to be my wife's favorites. Right? She's a big fan of Luke, and she's a big fan of the book of James. Now, it doesn't have to be on my top two list. Right? I'm more of a fan of the book of Daniel. Right? And in a couple of weeks, we're going to have an invitation to something called a dessert at the pastor's house. Right? And at that, I'll explain a little bit more about why Daniel is one of my favorite books. All right? But you'll just have to wait for some details on that to come out and know that it's coming and that you're all invited to come have dessert at my house right? because I like chocolate chip cookies. Right, and I don't like cake. If you like cake, we're not gonna have cake. I'm sorry. I like ice cream too. And Justin, for the last six weeks, hasn't let me have any ice cream. It's not been on my my uh, six week uh, losers plan over here, but it's been good for me. It's, I probably shouldn't eat ice cream as much as I do, but I like ice cream. And uh, so we'll have that at that dessert fellowship, and I'll share some more about why Daniel is my favorite. But today, you need to know that Luke is one of my wife's favorites. By the way. It's okay to have favorite books of the Bible. It's not the same as like kids, right? Where you're not supposed to have favorites. It's okay in the Bible to have a favorite book of the Bible or some favorite scripture passages that you've memorized or that you like to go back to over and over again. Luke is one of my wife's favorites because long ago, Luke was described to us as Luke loves the little people. Luke loves the little people, right? If you think about it, the book of Luke, at the very beginning, it has the story about announcing Jesus' birth. It gets announced to lowly shepherds, and they're the ones who come and see it inside of Luke's account. He has more children inside of his account. He has more women inside of his account. He has the poor inside of his account more than any other gospel. In the course of everything, Luke was very intentional because he loved the little people about including them in his story. In fact, Luke was so intentional about it that Luke earned a designation that his gospel was the gospel for everyone. Now, he was given that designation because we think that Luke's gospel was actually a commissioned piece. Somebody paid him to write this gospel. Luke was not a, a, um, one of the disciples. He wasn't there and witnessed all of these sorts of accounts of stuff. Right? That's different than the other three gospels, which were people that were there or they were direct information from the things that they witnessed or somebody who witnessed it. In fact, Luke, because it was a commissioned piece... He went and interviewed all of the people that he could find about the stories that were there. And then he writes, he says, to Theophilus. Theophilus. Now, we don't know if Theophilus was the person who paid Luke to write the book. That's one answer about who Theophilus is that he was writing to. But if you, I love the Greek sometimes, and this is where I'm going to nerd out on you for just a moment. If you take what the Greek word is there of Theophilus, uh, it literally means God lover, right? In fact, a better translation of it is friend of God, friend of God, or the one who loves God. And so Luke was writing his book to anybody who was a friend of God or one who loves God. He was writing his book for anybody to be able to understand how to become a friend of God, and then it was available for everyone. He wanted it to be known that it wasn't just for the rich. It wasn't just for the powerful. It wasn't just for the religious. It was something that was for everyone. 
Now, with that in mind, I think it's important for us to look at this story with that lens. If Luke is intentionally including people for them to know who it is that they are and that the story that of what Jesus did is for them, then who does Luke include in this story? And the first thing that we see is, is that in this story, there is a crowd. It's the very first thing that we're introduced to. Now, to be honest, there's actually three different crowds that exist inside of this story. The first crowd is the disciples, right? Those who were the intimate default followers of Jesus Christ, the ones that he called, that he was training up for the purpose of continuing his mission after he was gone. They were there. But then there's a second crowd that is kind of, it's, it's those that were drawn and a whole bunch of people that are different from just the disciples, right? Now, years ago, Rick Warren, um, when he was putting together Saddleback Church, he said, look, there are ways that people engage with your organization. He gave five different ways. So he says, there are people that exist outside in your community. They may just generically understand and know about who your organization is and that you even exist as an organization. I would certainly say that's true about us in, the, in Australia with people about the church in Australia. There are people who live in our community, and that's about as close as we are to them right now. But then there are some other people who are part of the crowd, right? They've had some sort of connection with us. Maybe they've had an invite from us. Maybe they've had um, a conversation with us at some point. Um, they've rubbed shoulders with somebody who goes here. And so there's some sort of connection that has moved them from just being out here in the community to they're a little bit more narrow group that exists inside of that called the crowd. But then there's another group inside of that, which is really those of you that exist inside of this room today. And there's actually some more than just what's sitting in here right now. Some people that aren't here today that have come in, that they've worshiped with us, they've fellowshiped with us, they've hung out at our tables with us, and they would be called a congregation, right? Now in church, we always think of congregation as the church, right? The church congregation. Well, he says, yeah, that's exactly right. Those that have, that have come in and they've been with you, they know who you are now, that's the next level of being drawn in. But then there's, there are those that sit out here every week, and then there are those who are committed. They're the ones who are um, helping to set up the chairs on stuff. They're here every single week when the, the doors open, right? Today, today, a committed church member is considered somebody who shows up two out of four weeks. Now, 30 years ago, you had to make it three out of four to be a committed church member. 50 years ago, you had to make it four out of four to be a committed church member. All right? We're, we keep dropping the bar just a little bit. But there are those people who are, they're more committed about the things that go on and the things that are helping here. But then there's still another group. There are those that you'd call your core. Right? These are the people that when all heck is breaking loose you call them and say how can you possibly help me we've got to get through this because they are your rock they're the bedrock of everything it is that goes on now i don't expect for everybody that's in our congregation to be in our core and the same way there were a whole bunch of different people that were existed in this other crowd that was following jesus right there were some of them who were just the crowd they had just rubbed shoulders with somebody who had seen what was going on and they heard and so they kind of came in and, and got a little bit closer to everything and they moved over to being a part of that congregation. There were those though that were there that really were core, they just weren't the disciples. 
In fact, in the book of Acts, when Judas has killed himself because he's so distraught over everything that took place with Jesus, the disciples say, we need to replace Judas. And so they say, here's what our standard is for in order to replace Jesus. We need to find our Judas. We need to find somebody who has been here with us the entire time, who's been walking around with us, hearing Jesus' teachings, knows everything. You know what they're saying? We can pull from the core to find a new disciple. Because there were a core group of people who were following in there all the time. Now, recently, Rick's added a new level to all of this. And he says, hey, not only are there the core, but there's the commission, those that you send out. And that's true, and that's true of us at some point. We want to take those who get down into our core, and we want to be a church that is sending people out as well. Now, right now, we're still in a massive growing phase, and so we're not fully implemented into a going phase. We do most of our going right here in our own community. But it's coming and so you can know that this is how we look at the things that we're doing as a church. We understand that there's people that exist in our community, and we want to move them from being in the community to being in the crowd. We want to move them into having some sort of conversation or relationship with us. It's why on March 24th, when they have the Easter extravaganza, we're going to have a booth up there, and we're going to have volunteers that are there helping with that day. Why? Because we want to make as many connections with people that exist in our community to help move them into the crowd, because now they know who we are. And from there, we're hoping that with some of your help, that we begin to bring people into being here. You know, one of the words that's really scary in Christian circles is the word evangelism, right? And if you've been a Christian for very long, then you know the word evangelism um, generally is described as sharing the good news or sharing the gospel message with somebody. Now, in churches that I grew up in, we had 10 steps for how to tell somebody about Jesus, right? Who? memorized all of these verses and all of these steps. We had uh, EE, which was Evangelism Explosion, and so you had these specific questions you were supposed to ask. We had um, FAITH, and so you had acronyms that you were supposed to learn, and FAITH was F stood for forgiveness, A stands for available, I, I mean, see, I still know some of these things. <clears throat> it, it's incredible. And so we put all of this structure around how it was that you had to do evangelism. And we said, hey, you're not a good evangelist if you're not telling your friends about Jesus. Now, look, here's the difficulty with that. Everybody, when they become a Jesus follower, they get a spiritual gift. But not everybody's spiritual gift is evangelism. And so I want to tell you the best thing that you can do about evangelism is you can invite a friend to come here. That's evangelism, right? You're telling them where to go find water in the desert. Here's the oasis. I'll take you to the oasis. I don't have to give you the fire hose and try to make you drink from it. I don't have to teach you how to scoop it with your hands. I just take you and we watch and see what happens from there. And that's an opportunity that every single one of you have, especially as we come towards Easter, to help move somebody from crowd to congregation. And if you've been here for a while, you might start saying, well, I know that I might fit in the congregation level. <clears throat> Maybe it's time to take the next step and say, what would it take for me to look like I'm committed here? What would it take for me to feel like I'm core here? If you're a first-time guest, don't, don't worry. We're only going to make you a core by the third time you're here, all right? <laughs> but, you know, here's the other thing that happens is, is sometimes we attach levels of righteousness to these different levels that existed inside of the crowd. And that's not true. 
If you exist in the congregation versus existing in the court, that doesn't make you more righteous. It doesn't change any of that. It's kind of like saying, well, if I exist in the court and I'm really bad, then I can no longer be in the court. No, there isn't a qualification given out about how good or how bad we are. Because the truth is, is we're all sinners. We're all messed up. So Luke helps us understand that there are some different groups that are there. But there's a third group that exists. And this group um, stands in stark contrast to the group that was following Jesus, the great crowd that, was, that existed there. This group is um, the group that is following the deceased man. They're a group that's filled with whiners and moaners, right? They were professionals. Now, some of you, some of you just thought of people that you think should be professional whiners and moaners in your lives. You're like, man, if they could get paid for that, or if I got paid for their whining and moaning, I could retire right now, right? So, but they were, they were paid to, to be a, a wailer and to mourn with the family. And so there were some of those that were there. Now, there are other people that were there that they, uh, they just like the ones that were following Jesus, that they were on different levels. Some of them, they understood that there was hurt and pain in this woman's life, and they didn't know what to do other than just be there. Now, being there when somebody is hurting is good, right? Is good, but I know that I've had times in my life when I'm hurting, and I know that you have too, and somebody just being there, if we're all being honest about it, is less than what we really want, right? We may know that they don't have the ability to fix it. They don't have anything that they can really offer to us, but man, we're still seeking that in the moment of our hurt, right? Yeah, and that's who some of these people were. But these two great crowds, the one following Jesus, regardless of their commitments levels, and the ones following the dead man, they stand in a stark juxtaposition because one crowd is full of life, joy, happiness and the other crowd is full of sorrow and death but you know Luke doesn't just talk in generalities inside of this passage he also has some specific people that he mentions the first or the second one the casket guy now I thought it sounded a little bit um, sacrilegious to say the dead man so I thought we'd go with the casket guy so here he is, right? He has no idea about anything that's going on because he's dead, right? Everybody else is carrying him. They're carrying all of the weight, all of the baggage, everything that's going on. In fact, it describes what's called a, a beer, right? And not like beer that you drink, all right? That's not what they're all doing right here. It's not some sort of a wake going on, but a beer. And so what it was was it's like a giant stretcher. I didn't really have a casket, so calling him a casket guy is probably a really bad analogy for stuff, because it's really like this giant long stretcher that has poles on either side. And you had guys in the front and guys in the back that would be carrying his body, and his body would be wrapped with everything except for the face. And they would be carrying the body out of the town and out towards, um, from this particular town, there were some cliffs that were just about a mile or two outside of the town. And that's where they would have been headed to some tombs that were there to put his body inside of the tomb and likely to put it in the same place that his father was. 
Because the Bible tells us that this woman was a widow, which means that her husband, his dad, had already passed away. You know, that brings us to the second person that, that we see inside of this. After we see um, the casket guy, we see the compassion, right? Now, that's probably a made-up word, I understand, right? But I'm going for the C thing here, right? Crowds, casket guy, compassion that's the widow, right? The woman who receives the compassion of Jesus. I, I love what I read about her. Here it is. Jesus comes into town. He sees her in her sorrow. But did you notice that as Jesus comes in and there's this great crowd, this great multitude who has all of this life and excitement, she doesn't run over to Jesus. She doesn't say... To anybody, who is this man? Can he help me out with what's going on? One author wrote this. He, he said, perhaps she was already past the dim hope that her son would be or could be given back to her. Perhaps her future was so dark that she couldn't imagine another way out. Perhaps all she can do in this moment of despair is just grieve for her son and for herself. Perhaps there was nothing left for her to do but just to face death. Wow. Man. You see, in first century, a woman wasn't permitted to go Her livelihood was dependent on a man in her life. When her husband was there, he provided the means for them. When he died and passed on to the son, he provided a means for them. Now that he was dead, she was going to have to rely on, rely on the kindness of everybody else in the town. She was a beggar. Her food, her money, anything that she needed had to come from best she could hope for at harvest time was getting the gleanings from the field. The leftovers. How can you begin not to feel like you're a leftover at that moment? But then something happened. Someone happened. Jesus. Our fourth person, the Christ. Now Jesus is really actually the first one that's on this scene. But I've saved him until here at the very end because even though the crowd was following him, it's Jesus who notices this woman. Right? He's the one who notices that she is a widow. She's lost her husband. He's the one who notices that she's just lost her son. He's the one who has compassion. There wasn't anybody else in that text who mentions anything to her. Nothing. Nobody. Not a person. Not a person in Jesus' crowd. Not a disciple. Not a person in her crowd. Nobody else, does it say, took compassion on her. Just Jesus. And Jesus intrudes into this scene 
This scene that is full of death and full of hopelessness, he sees the widow's tears, he hears her cry, the cries of anguish that God has long said that if my people will cry out, I'll hear them. I'll respond to them. And Jesus hears that. And he responds. Jesus not only heals the dead man in this passage, Jesus heals this broken woman. It's almost as if Luke does this. He says resurrection is not just a resuscitation, resuscita I can't say the word. <laughs> resurrection is not just a resuscitation. Resurrection is not just a resuscitation of a dead body. I didn't get it that time. It's fine. I'm just going to move on. I try. But it's the invigoration of people. It's an invigoration of people and their communities in which the righteousness of God and God's justice shows up. What an awesome statement. Notice with me verse 13. When the Lord saw her, not only did he have compassion on her, but he said to her, do not weep. Do not weep. Now sometimes when I read Jesus, I go, really? Here's a woman who's lost everything. And you walk up to her and your commandment, right? This is not a suggestion to her. He looks directly at her and says, don't weep. It's an imperative. Don't do it. And you go, wait, in what strength, in what ability could she possibly not weep over what's going on here? How could you possibly, Jesus, expect her to stop weeping? How could you give such an unfair commandment like that? And Jesus says, because in me, there's all the strength that you need. And immediately, after he says to her, don't weep, Jesus changes everything. He steps out in front of the entire processional, and he puts his hand on the bier. And they stop. And this is a big deal. Because he's just touched something that is unholy and unclean. And Jesus is supposed to be a prophet. Jesus is supposed to be a priest. Surely he knows you're not supposed to touch the beer. The guys who carried it out had cleanness rituals that they had to follow after this happens. Jesus cannot engage in anything at this moment. And it's like everything stops. Those that were mourning and wailing and crying out, those who might have been playing music, whether it was happy or sad, all of it stops. And then Jesus says this. He says, young man, get up. And he does. He sits up, and then Jesus takes and all of his compassion on display. And he gives the boy, the young man, who's probably, when we say boy, I mean, we start thinking like a young man. No, he was probably like in his 20s. And 
Jesus takes him and gives him back to his mother. Now here's the interesting thing. Is that in this moment when Jesus spoke, Jesus spoke into more than just the boy. And into the man. Because Jesus challenged everyone that was there. Because their responses changed afterwards. Sure, the dead man came back to life. That's a good way to start with everything, right? People might want to know who you are when you bring somebody back from the dead. They might start asking some questions when a dead guy sits up all of a sudden and he goes back to his mom. But Jesus challenged everybody that was there. Now in this story, as you listen to it, there's probably some different people that you identified with. Maybe you identified with the crowd that was following a dead man. Mourning, moaning, whining, complaining. Everything's broken. There's no solutions. There's no answers to any of this. Maybe if you're honest, you are the dead man. Everybody else is the one that's carrying everything that's going on. And you don't even really know it. Maybe you're the widow. Maybe you have so much hurt. You've lost so much hope. Like, I just, I don't know what to do. Maybe I just continue on just existing. Maybe I don't. Maybe, maybe you're part of the crowd that was following Jesus. You're here because you know it's the right thing to do. You know incredible things can happen, but if you were being truthful about everything, you'd say, you know what? I'm just showing up. I'm just showing up. Or maybe you're like me, and you'd say, you know, I, I want to be like the disciples. I want to be one who is called by Jesus, who is doing everything I can to be obedient and to follow him, to do the things that he's called me to do. But I missed it in this whole situation. They missed it, right? They didn't go over to the woman and say, hey, we have the guy who can solve all your problems. They did. And he'd solved everybody else's problems up to this point. They knew what he could do. They knew that he was the son of God. But they didn't go over to her and say, hey, let me introduce you to my Jesus. They missed it. They missed the brokenness that existed inside of her world. You know, an entire city was changed in an instant right there because of the way that Jesus challenged all of them. You see, before Jesus came in, there was brokenness and no beauty in them. But after Jesus, after Jesus came, everything was changed. It was beautiful once again. If you've been in church for a long time, then you've probably heard about the 23rd Psalm. 
It's a psalm that David wrote, and in it he says, Though the Lord is my shepherd, and I shall not want, he leads me to green pastures. There's another name for Naim, which is green pastures. Green pastures. Jesus led all of them to a greener pasture. Because of him, the city, the entire city could stop weeping. The mourners, the wailers, no longer needed to wail. Said everybody, everybody now was celebrating Jesus because of him. Look, the secret is the same. No matter if you're dead, if you're the widow, if you're just falling to see what happens, it doesn't matter any of those things, which category you're in. This challenge was the same for every single person. And here's what it is. Jesus offers hope to everyone because of his compassion. Jesus offers hope to everyone because of his compassion. He offers hope to every single one of us that exists in this room today. If you're sitting here, Jesus offers hope. And his hope comes because of his compassion. And if you don't know the hope of Jesus, don't walk out like the widow and just continue on a path towards death and just existing. Come and find and know the hope that exists. Don't leave without it. Now, if you're not a Jesus follower, it's okay for just a moment you can tune out because this next section of what I'm going to talk about is really for those of you who are a Jesus follower. Right? And here's what I want to say. This week, you're going to encounter people. You're going to encounter people who are following a dead guy. You're going to encounter people who are mourners and wailers. You're going to encounter people who understand the brokenness around them. And your job as you encounter those people is to bring them hope. To bring them hope. Well, Charles, am I supposed to do that with everyone? Listen, Andy Stanley has a great saying. He coined it a couple of years ago, and he says, he says this. He says, do for one what you wish you could do for the many. Do for one what you wish you could do for the many. Because I'm at such a great message that you and I need to lean in. And that because of Jesus, I can care for someone else. And I can show them where hope They need you to share the story with them. The story of a woman who had no hope, who'd lost everything, and how Jesus changed it. They need you to share your story with them. Each of us were that woman at one point. We had no hope. But because of Jesus, Father, I thank you. Thank you that we have an opportunity to give hope to the world because we have the ability to give Jesus. And I love what John, who was there in this moment as disciple, says. He says that 
I don't love Jesus out of my goodness, but I love him because he first loved me. God, I know that's so true. Know that his compassion on me has allowed me to have hope. It's the answer to the brokenness. God, may we take that message to our friends, to our family, as they're experiencing brokenness, that God, you, that Jesus gave us help. Because you took compassion on us. Just give you all of the glory and the honor.